and so forth without becoming neurotic and stressed out and a jerk along the way, right? I grapple with that question personally because I'm a goal-directed, kind of driven, to-do list sort of person. And it's been a deeply interesting question for me. So it's a central question, isn't it? Same question. How do you be a practicing attorney and, and do this for an investment banker and do this? Yeah. And without, without being a major flaming... Yeah. Or how do you raise young children and do this? I could, I could do it. I'd retire. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... This is, I could do it. I'd retire. Because you really got in the way of making a lot of money. <laughs> that, that's very interesting <laughs> okay so let's see here um, ways into it one is research shows on people over the long haul of a career there probably are certain kinds of careers where the nature of the work is just calls people to a red zone mind where you're under, to dysfunction and compete with others in that domain, on the trading floor, in the courtroom, uh, <coughs> in the, <coughs> in combat. I was going to ask about combat, I'm a combat vet, and mm-hmm. also emergency room nurses. Yeah. We live, we live on that edge of, of that windshield mm-hmm. and don't, Everything is compressed to like zero time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I had a client who's a physician, ER doctor, and after a shift, he just had to collapse for about three days. Problem is he couldn't and stuff like that. So, um, and then also, what if you do if you're just, you're living in your living situation, you're in a refugee camp, you're, you're in a, really tough neighborhood or a tough home where you you just kind of pragmatically need to be on edge to function. I think that's true. I think there's a reality of that, a category of that, that is what it is. And then the question is, how do I manage the impacts on the core of me? Even if the as it were, sleeve of me or the shell of me has got to go to war every minute of every day just to protect my kid brother or something else, right? Um, get through this tour, you know, et cetera. I think there's, there's material about that. How do you try to buffer and things that show up around that that are in part based on research from people that work in that area. I'm not a specialist in that area, but sense of meaning, sense of uh, group identity, group loyalty, uh, meaning including a higher purpose, a greater cause that's being served. Uh, that really helps. Uh, it also helps to go into that situation, and they're doing this in you know, training of soldiers and other things, where you develop more what's called stress hardiness. So yeah, your blood pressure's up there and you're taking on stress hormones, but, in, but your recovery rate is faster and it, and it less consumes and overwhelms you. So there's that part. I think that's true. I think it's also true that many careers and professions or uh, um, self-employment situations, your own businesses, over the long haul, the strategy that's associated with or the way of being that's associated with the highest likelihood of long-term success, including lifetime earnings and accomplishment 
and creativity and reputation is actually not associated with the classic advice to be driven and intense and never lose your edge. And, um, uh, it's not. That may work for the short haul. But for the long haul, what seems to work is the cultivation of a core of positive emotion. And as I said to somebody at the break, there's a really important point in terms of the nervous system, sympathetic nervous system activation. It's called the sympathetic nervous system or the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. In and of itself is not a problem. It's a problem when it's combined with negative emotion. Sympathetic activation plus negative emotion equals stress. Sympathetic activation plus positive emotion equals enthusiasm, passion, delight, engagement. See the difference? It's really interesting. And here's another little detail. Research on cats, okay? If you stimulate certain parts of their brain you trigger a rage reaction. Stimulate different parts of the brain, you trigger predatory pursuit. The cat can chase the mouse without hating the mouse. The person can hit that topspin in tennis with full aggressiveness without being angry. Isn't that interesting? To, per the Buddha, again, deconstructing, disentangling things, that people can be intense even aggressively intense, to a moral purpose of some kind or inside the the game, like playing tennis or um, other kinds of games or competitions, etc. We can be intense. We can be aggressive. We can be, in some sense, predatory in the sense of going after a goal. Um, My main sport was rock climbing, and people would say... Hanson climbs best after he falls off. And it's true. Because I'm like... (laughs) And I think it's really interesting to explore that territory. Uh, It shows up around social justice as well. Where you've had it. And you're for those you're protecting. You have a fierce commitment to them. But yet, your mind has not been consumed by the dark side of the force. That's really interesting territory to explore. And one of the keys to it is not letting yourself be invaded by negative emotion. It may arise, and then the question is, how do I use that anger or use that sorrow related to the longing for justice to fuel me? Right? And also, meanwhile, lots and lots of positive emotion of various kinds. Camaraderie, love, uh, uh, a sense of gratitude for what is also true, uh, sense of accomplishment of little goals along the way, accessing well-being just as it is, in part through training and the cultivation of positive emotion, wholeheartedness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So I think those are keys. So if we're going to dream big dreams and go for it, including in environments where people and organizations for their purposes, often profit-oriented purposes, are trying to manipulate us with fear or greed, or a fear that if I slow down at all, others are going to start beating me and I'm going to be a loser. Right? Um, in those environments, it really is helpful to track this distinction between stressed out drivenness 
and enthusiastic passion. And even distinguish between uh, kind of aggressive or intense pursuit of certain goals, distinguishing that from anger or rage. They're really different. And really cultivating positive emotion along the way. And last suggestion, I use the phrase aspiration without attachment, where it's really interesting to explore what is it like to be absolutely dedicated to a goal and wanting it and knowing that if you don't get it, you'll be disappointed, you'll be frustrated, your heart, there'll be pangs there, while at the same time, you can be at peace with whatever happens. Right? That's really interesting. And it does look like, on the whole, people who can live in that sweet spot of passion and energy and resolve with positive emotion, uh, kind of a peaceful warrior, cheerful and peaceful warrior along the way, that's probably your best odds um, recipe for long-term success. Yeah. All right. That's my two cents. And I try to practice that myself, and it's a work in progress. All right. I think it's helpful, too, to think about the culture you're around. Because I've just known business... I have a business background, too, and I've just known business cultures where um, they were just really exploitive. That was the truth. And they would even send people out for their mindfulness program so that it could exploit them more. <laughs> right? And, um, you know, and it, so just thinking about that. Who are you with? What's the culture around that? Uh, People playing dominance games around you. Okay, my two cents. <laughs> Onward, okay? All right, good. So I want to do the last two here and then really close to 4.30. Um, so <clears throat> this material that I'm going to get into right now about allness is based a lot on the work of a neurologist and longtime Zen practitioner, James Austin. You may have seen or heard of Austin's first book, Zen and the Brain, which is about four inches thick. Nobody's read it, uh, but it's impressive. You guys read it. You're unusual. All right, then there's another one, Zen Brain, Zen and the Brain, Zen Brain Reflection, something. It's a little thinner, but it's still intense. Then there's the one I, I'm really going to speak to. I think it's called Selfless Insight. That's better. And then there's his most recent one, which is Thinnest of All. So I want to give my acknowledgments to Austin. Austin enters this question... Uh, from the standpoint of uh, what's going on in the brain in someone who goes through Satori or Kensho, has an awakening, awakening, particularly in the Zen tradition. And he asked the question, why is it that it usually happens, the historical, uh, the well-known incidents, and also even less well-known ones, but just inside a community or a temple, it's sort of known when it happens. It usually does not happen during formal meditation. That's interesting. Very often happens in nature. It's often associated with surprise. And often, when the eyes have moved out to the horizon line, if not to the heavens. What's going on there? So he's developed this plausible 
operationalization of your brain on Satori. And uh, I've adapted it to my purposes. He's not that oriented, oriented around what you can actually do to cultivate these factors, and I'm going to get into what you can actually do. And um, the detail of this is in the slides. So you might want the slides. And if you want to get the slides, remember, give me your name and email address. Please print neatly. Um, and it's on the table over there. Okay. So basically, Austin points out that in our perceptual processing systems, which are very fundamental, and the foundation of cognition is sensory motor processing. If you think about it, it's very fundamental. So, um, and he emphasizes the visual processing stream, but it's true of other perceptual processing. Basically, we go back and forth several times a minute between what he calls an allocentric perspective and an egocentric perspective. So I want to distinguish between the two, talk about how to cultivate the allocentric perspective, and then do a practice with you. And if you want more about this, check out his book, Selfless Insight. Um, the, yeah. Okay, so first of all, allocentric perspective, we t- it's being-oriented. Egocentric is doing-oriented. I'll show you the egocentric slide in a second. The allocentric perspective is more ancient. As, as the nervous system has evolved 600 or so million years, the sense of self has strikingly increased. Even with very sophisticated close cousins like chimpanzees or whales or elephants this, or dolphins, this its sense of self is hard to identify through the best experiments people so far have been able to do. So the this more impersonal, just things as they are, is more ancient. And it tends to be associated with lower, uh, physically lower, anatomically lower processing streams, streams of information processing, streams of network activation inside the brain. Egocentric is more recent, kind of sits on top. Allocentric is basically what it is, just as it is, independent of me. It's not about what it is in reference to my point of view. Do I like you? Do I not like you? No. It's what it is in its own right. And you can observe this yourself. You do a little experiments right now. If you bring your gaze close to your body, it's within a couple meters, you know, a meter, a few feet away. You just kind of notice this increase of friend or foe because it's close. But then... Just deliberately allow your your gaze to move out. What happens to your emotions? To your sense of being? It starts getting calmer. And it's really interesting. Less personal, more diffuse, more things as they are. Less instrumental. If it's close, it's how do I, what do I do with it? Is it going to eat me? Can I eat it? What's going on here? You know? But if you... If your gaze moves out, it's less instrumental. It's not about what can I do with it, how can I use it, which is self-referenced. It's more what is it in its own right. It goes to objective. Things exist in, in a space in which their location is impersonal. It's not, a, it's not referring to me. And this sense of <clears throat> not distinguishing among things and just things as they are. Suchness is very present in non-dual perspectives 
And it seems to be what people report as best they can when they're talking about their what it's like to be them when they're in this Satori state or when they report back about it hours or days or years later. Okay? And this is, this is normal. This is a way to be. What Austin's interested in, and I am too, is how do we stabilize here or move in and out of this at will. Then we have egocentric. It's action-oriented. What do I do with carrots? How do I manage sticks? Friend or foe, right? Um, it's based on more recent neural processing streams in the brain, especially perceptual processing streams. Um, so it's um, including in the thalamus, which is this big sensory switchboard in the subcortex. There are two of them, two thalami, all right? So upper streams. And I listed the fancy terms for some of the major components of the default network. There will be no midterm, fear not. And also parietal regions, that's the fourth major lobe of the cortex, right around here, two of them, that confer the sense of self here, other there. All right? Okay, just that. Um, And it establishes where it is. Not just what it is, but where it is. So what it is, remember alerting? Remember how I said the alerting systems are intertwined with allocentric systems? It's like, um, you know, what it is. Something has happened. Whereas the egocentric is more, where is it? And how can I use it? Okay? Subjective, things relationship to me, ordinary consciousness. Okay, so far? Good. These two tend to oscillate based on a little, little switches in the thalamus, the thalami, two of them, several times a minute. And again, as soon as I read his stuff, I started observing my own experience through this lens. And you could see under normal conditions, if you have present moment awareness, uh, that your, your mind will just kind of cycle through, you know, it's kind of scanning reality, What's this got to do with me? How can I use it to impersonal? Oh, things just as they are. And then back to me again. There's kind of a rhythm there. And there's a similar rhythm in the activation of these networks. And they're connected like a seesaw. As you go more allocentric, that suppresses egocentrism. As you become more egocentric, there's a loss of the sense of the impersonal whole that one is part of. As new stimuli land and the alerting networks are engaged of attention, those aspects of attention, allocentric processing increases. And then on the heels of it, within a second or two or three, there tends to be egocentric processing. Okay, now that I'm alert, something has happened, I have a sense of what it is, now how is it relevant to me? What's salient about it? What's useful? And just think of this, as Mother Nature is... um, not so much like a grand architect. She's more like a cobbler, a tinkerer, kind of gradually putting things together as long as they increase the odds of genes passing on genes, basically, over a long time scale. So these are tendencies and capabilities that support survival and passing on genes that pass on genes. And you can see how they're both useful. All right? Good. Okay, so far? Now, yeah. Yeah. And I'm noticing you're not talking about that 
at all, but it's kind of the same notion of the amygdala being the egocentric and the prefrontal cortex helping to expand awareness, see things from a new perspective. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts at all. Okay, so super briefly, think about prefrontal cortex, amygdala, and the amygdala is in the subcortex, so that means it's kind of started a row, you know, emerging 200-ish million years ago. So, And what the amygdala does a lot, again, there are two of them, is it's tracking. It's very much where the tracking of the feeling tone is occurring. So it's tracking, and especially when that feeling tone or hedonic tone is negative, the amygdala initiates the fight-flight-freeze sequence. It's... It's the alarm bell where it sends signals out to other parts of the brain and the body and cascades to mobilize for action. But the amygdala also tracks what's pleasant. It just is biased to the unpleasant. Although there's some people who have literally, this is the title of a research paper, a joyful amygdala. <laughs> I'm trying to develop a joyful amygdala myself so that they're tracking the unpleasant, but, they're, but what's pleasant, reward or opportunity. Opportunity is more relevant to them than threat. They tend to be approach-oriented. So the amygdala isn't the bad guy here. And it's not like there's some place in which egocentrism is located. It's very distributed. Um, Now, a lot of egocentrism, a lot of me, 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 is very based on sense of the red zone. Fight, flight, freeze. And so we've been training in here to reduce that tendency uh, to take care of real issues care of real issues. But in part because you've taken care of real issues, to realize that the war right this moment at least is over. Mm-hmm. We can lower our guard, we can chill out, pet the dog, sit on the porch, and breathe. Mm-hmm. Right? And then rest there increasingly. And then on the basis of that, then we don't have to be so egocentric. So that's, that's true. It's also true that in the prefrontal cortex, there's tremendous amount of me, 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 you know? So people tend to make these days, they tell a story that the most recent part of the brain is the good part of the brain, and then the lizard brain is the bad brain. No, it all works together. I think there are a lot of chilled out lizards and a lot of neurotic (laughs) assholes living in their prefrontal cortex. So, you know, you got to work it together. Okay, yeah, so it all really works together. So that that said... um, Okay, so the point is, and I want to move into this practice stuff, there's a lot in this about the sense of self. And there's this classic line or teaching from Dogen, great Zen teacher, to study the way, the way of practice, is to study the sense of self in a lot of ways. To study the self, to have insight into it, including recognizing the emptiness of experiences of self. Buddha talks a lot about that. Okay, you have a sense of me or a sense of I or, or possessiveness or identification. But if you look at that experience, that experience is empty of absolute thinginess. Oh, anyway. So, okay. So, and then to, here's the key line, to forget the self is to be awakened by all things, to be illuminated or enlightened lived by all things. that kind of cool? So as we increasingly drop out of egocentrism into allocentrism, we feel more and more lived by everything. We feel more and more that what's happening here is a local ripple in the sea of causes or in the tapestry of reality 
that was happening here is the result of what's happening throughout the whole net, the whole network. And that's pretty good. All right, so how to do it. I'm going to move through three slides quickly. And actually, I'm going to back up and tell you how Austin talks about it. So here's the story he tells. He says, well, what if you, first of all, train as they do intensively in Zen style meditation, shikantaza, just sitting, especially soto Zen, just sitting. What if you really, really train in that form of practice which really engages the alerting aspect of attention? And since neurons that fire together wire together, you're really strengthening that alerting aspect. Interestingly, some of the early studies on the brains of people who did transcendental meditation meditation and people who did Zen meditation, both are good, blah, blah. They would have people uh, hooked up to EEGs and an EEG, and they would basically have a metronome that's just ticking, like every second. And there's this particular waveform, uh, P300, I believe, from memory, that happens when a new stimulus uh, lands in the brain of just any kind. And so then they started watching what happens in the brain, brains of people doing TM and were trained in TM compared to people who were doing Zen, just sitting style meditation, many kinds of meditations. All right. What they found was that fairly quickly, the people trained in transcendental meditation started tuning out the click. All right. They habituated to it, which is totally normal. But the Zen practitioners, every time the click arrived, twing, twing, every click, fresh click, Beginner's mind, Zen mind, don't know mind. See what I mean? So they were alerted every single time, every single time. Now, there's a benefit. It's efficient to habituate to stimuli that are repeating. And obviously, we don't want to turn a meditative procedure into a way of life, blah, blah. But that's another illustration of the power of training in the alerting function. So you train in the alerting function. Second, you cultivate tranquility. Because the little switches in the thalamus that control whether you're allocentric or egocentric in the way you're perceiving things broadly are regulated by a neurotransmitter neurochemical called GABA which is inhibitory and calming. So it's plausible that as people train in tranquility why is tranquility so generally appreciated in contemplative practices and traditions? So you train in tranquility. In Buddhism, it's considered to be one of the seven factors of awakening, tranquility. Tranquilizing the bodily formation, tranquilizing the breath, tranquilizing the mind. Even in the um, Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, they talk about tranquilizing the hedonic tones, the feeling tones of experience. In other words, calming down the amygdala for both pleasant and unpleasant. Chill, chill. So it's plausible that um, in those, uh, like I said, little switches are regulated by GABA. So now people have cultivated tranquility. Third, they live in nature a lot. A lot of natural life in the temple, out in the country, doing very simple things. A lot of sense of just being part of everything. So they're cultivating that more ecological perspective. Interesting. You can think of parallels to non-Zen traditions. 
Like I'm thinking immediately of first people, shamanic traditions, things people do. And then also people um, will do things where their attention is drawn out to the morning star. Or there is a sound of surprise, like the frog croaks. Or there's a, a, a Satori little poem of haiku from someone, I forget who, who describes his moment of awakening. He's carrying, a, literally, he's carrying an old wooden bucket, bamboo, I guess, something. And literally the bottom falls out. So his description is, uh, moon in a bucket. He's seeing the reflection of the moon. I trip out on photons from sun bouncing off moon. Hitting eyes. Okay, great. Moon in a bucket, the bottom falls out. Just imagine that. You're looking at the reflection of the moon in the bucket, this shimmering disk of light, and then the bottom falls out because it's an old bucket, literally. Surprise. Okay. Here's Austin's theory. In a nutshell, through this, we train and so that this these spikes so we have egocentric allocentric egocentric allocentric this oscillation regulated by the thalamus through training uh, instead of the normal egocentric allocentric rhythm it's egocentric allocentric egocentric allocentric egocentric allocentric okay and then egocentric allocentric egocentric allocentric at a peak of allocentric moment something happens the bottom falls out of the bucket. You see the morning star. Uh, the frog croaks. And, you're st- and that switch gets stuck on allocentric. And you're one with everything and your life has changed forever after. Yay. So the question is how to do that. I mean, that's the idea. It's plausible. and Okay. He's a neurologist. So... I'm just going to run through some practical suggestions because I'm a methods guy. So, taking in experiences of the normal allocentric mode. So you get used to it. I've been doing this more and more. Just you play around with looking out there, um, getting a sense of just um, looking at things more impersonally, not taking them so personally. Uh, So you're getting used to just the allocentric style. And you take it in and you get more comfortable with it. Another open awareness practices in which one, in one tradition or another, you're really training the alerting function of attention. Okay? You're not trying to understand anything. You're not trying to regulate it. You're just right there at the front edge of now. Okay? Training in tranquility, as I say here. <clears throat> Get more used to it. And being able to drop fairly rapidly into intense tranquility. drop into stillness so training in that that seems plausible okay within reach normal people householders all right manual control all right craving less and less craving because as we feel a sense of deficit or disturbance inside us as we meet the next moment we're going to tend to go egocentric. It's natural to go egocentric. And um, on the other hand, if we feel already full, we're, we don't need to worry so much about friend or foe or carrots or sticks. We deal with things, but we don't need to be agitated by it. Mm-hmm. 
Also, we can relate to the mind itself, not just the physical reality, but mind itself from an allocentric perspective. Because we tend to do the same thing with the mind itself that we do with physical reality. Isn't that wild to consider? So practices that I took you into of abiding as the body as a whole, then including more aspects of experience, then ultimately going out to mind as a whole, could support plausibly this more allocentric view. And then um, here's where it starts often conceptually, but it can become more of a felt recognition of the truth. That everything that's happening is the local expression of a vast network of causes. Right? We know that intellectually, but you start to realize, like literally, you may well know this already, basically every element in your body Every atom in your body besides hydrogen and helium was born inside a star, usually when it was exploding. Iron in the blood, calcium in the teeth and bones, um, other minerals, carbon, where carbon-based life forms, oxygen we're breathing. You are breathing stardust right now. Carbon dioxide, exhaling stardust right now. Like, we, our bodies are here, dependent upon a bunch of exploding stars, and a universe is now 13.7.8 billion years old. Right? Or just think of this moment right now, that thing that's going off, the little, the little chime, the temple bell. It's the phone right now that's ringing. No worries. The temple bell serving us all has rippled out causes that have created this moment of hearing. So more and more you start to understand and relate to this moment of experience embedded in this body as like a local ripple in the sea of causes. Often starts intellectually, but it becomes uh, increasingly felt. I like this quotation from John Muir, great conservationist, naturalist. When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to the whole universe. Yeah. All right. So, only allness, right? Um, So, earlier we explored what it's like, even if only for a second, to get a sense of mind process, process unfolding as a whole, including in the awareness aspects and every little bit of it. And what happens when you regard mind as a whole? Suddenly, suffering drops out. Same thing with the material universe. I've had experiences of, other people in the room probably have as well, where you suddenly get that there's only allness. And allness as allness is not impermanent, as best we know. And there's no problem in allness as allness. The trick is not to get intellectual about it, or philosophical, it's really easy to go there. The point is also not to justify oppression and war and tragedy. No. But if you just kind of get, wow, there's just one allness. To see what happens in your mind. When you just start to kind of get a sense of scale. Like, I have a picture on my, the wallpaper. I think I can do this. Yeah. 
So what you're seeing in the background is what's called the deep field uh, image, there we are, from the Hubble Space Telescope probably 30 or so years ago, where the telescope did a long exposure of a tiny little pinhole in the sky, about the size of a dime at 200 feet. Imagine how small that would be, a little pinhole in the sky. It's like a dark tunnel, and it sucked light in from what was down that tunnel going 5 billion years back in time, 5 billion-ish light years away. What did it find? It found this, what you see in this image, in which there are about 200 galaxies. Current estimates, two trillion galaxies in the universe. Right. I look at this thing and I go, what am I stressing about my wife for? (laughs) You know? It's like big picture, brother. Right? You just see what happens when you just go out. Uh, Also, there's obviously the visual field is lifting up from local to wow. Um, So... That's another aspect of this, to drop into a sense of only allness. Okay? That's why the cookie doesn't matter. That's why the cookie doesn't matter, she says. Maybe it matters to the cookie, but that's a whole thing. (laughs) I'll skip that one. All right, let's see if we can get this. Okay, great. So I have to fast forward. So we're moving into practice. I'll end my 4.30. And I feel just honestly talking about this is a practice. It just shapes you to mold this, right? Okay. So I want to kind of name a sequence here. And then in the interest of time, I think, yeah, we have time to do this little bit for a few moments. So this, I find, is a sequence that's helpful. It builds on what we've done so far. If we had more time, we would take more time with it. A little detail. In next summer, I want to teach a 10-day retreat for... uh, Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado where I'm going to take roughly 10 days to go through this material. So that's a way of saying that probably I'll do something like that here too but that's a way of saying that this is a lot in a condensed period of time. But I'd rather just offer it to you. These are practical tools you can, and then you can use them in your own in your life as you see best. So if you think about it the sequence would be to kind of establish a foundation. You're doing okay in here. Right? And then, for me, the way the sequence works is that I I do the sense of things as a whole. I get a sense of the impersonality of the space. Then there's an awareness that whatever thought is happening immediately, whatever sound is occurring or sensation is occurring, is logically, you know it rationally to be true, is, is an effect of so many other causes. So that's really interesting to regard your own stream of consciousness as not your own. It doesn't mean to dissociate from it or depersonalize from it or to not take good care of it, but to get a sense of, wow, by definition, what's appearing in my mind in this moment is arising dependently, as the Buddha taught it forever, dependently upon all the other stimuli that preceded it, dependent upon how this body and brain are constructing and conditioning experience, it's made up. Here's an example of that. Imagine that there's a hula hoop in front of you, about that big. Five, ten feet in front of you. About five feet in front of you, let's say. 
Okay, you got roughly the sense of that? The center of your visual field. Now let me ask you, <clears throat> whether or not you're colorblind, there's a sense of different shades. Inside the hula hoop, you see color, right? In the center of your visual field, you see color. Are you aware of color around the center of your visual field? Or does it go black and white or gray? It's still color, right? And if you move your head or your eyes and the center of your visual field moves, it's still color. It's still technicolor all the way around it. Well, guess what? It's only in the center of the visual field that the rods and cones can turn the, inf- the photons coming in into color. If we saw the world based on literally the physicality of how the visual processes work, it would be color in the middle fading into gray around the sides. Yeah, what is right? It's CG'd. It's made up. It's virtual reality. Isn't that kind of wild to really get it? You know? And so, the, so when you kind of get that, oh, this stream of consciousness right now is constructed, and um, you get that the physical basis of that construction is also part of physical reality everywhere, it makes you freaked out at first. <laughs> but then you just relax because you realize, wow, thank you. And I can't fix it. And it takes you to peace because then you, you can't chase it or hold on to it at all so much. Okay? All right. Now, I want to talk about the last. And so, classically, this is a great saying from Southeast Asian Buddhist teacher, know the mind, shape the mind, free the mind. What does it actually mean to free the mind? So, we, knowing the mind is like mindfulness, self-awareness, whether or not it's in a Buddhist framework. Shaping the mind, we're influencing it, we're trying to condition it, we're raising our children, we're trying to shape the mind. What might it mean actually to free the mind? So as a kind of a framework, I think of mind, matter, and mystery. We start with mind. We start with our experience. There is hearing, there is seeing, there is tasting, there is wondering if I'm actually having an experience. Right? There's mind. From which we infer there's matter, there's meat, there's stuff that's creating this experience. Then the question is, do we just stop there? Now, people who are, let's say, uh, some people hold the view that there is nothing besides mind and matter. There is nothing supernatural. There is nothing outside the natural frame. That's their view. It's possible that that's true. I'm comfortable with that possibly being true. As my father, who was a devout Christian, said, and also a scientist, before he died, he was very peaceful, um, nearly 97, he said, well, Rick, I think I'm either going to heaven, it's either going to be heaven or oblivion, and I'm okay either way. Right? So there may be, yeah, I'm okay with the view that we're just going to practice inside the natural frame entirely and we're not going to take into account the mystery. But it's crystal clear to me and I think many other people who are truly scholars here that the Buddha very much was interested in the unconditioned outside of that which is conditioned mind and matter. So I'm going to just read to you a series of fairly profound um, teachings. And then kind of finish up with you here. So, O house builder, you are seen, the constructor 
of the sense of self, the house builder. You will not build this house again, the house of the psyche, for your rafters are broken and your ridge pole shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned. I have attained the destruction of craving. He's talking about himself. So clearly he is referring to something that's not impermanent and it's not conditioned or dependently arising because all that is dependently arising is subject to passing away. So he is naming right from the get-go that which is outside the natural frame of mind and matter alone. He's asserting its existence and he's saying that um, some intimation of it, some engagement with the transcendental, that which is outside the natural frame, is profoundly important to his own awakening and central to it. People sometimes try to finesse this in Buddhism these days. Maybe the Buddha was wrong. Maybe he was just tripping. Maybe. Don't know. But, you know, it's pretty clear that the historical record is saturated with references to that which lies outside the natural frame. Okay, here's another one. The entire world is in flames. The entire world is going up in smoke. The entire world is burning. The entire world is vibrating, changing. But that which does not vibrate or burn, which is experienced by the noble ones, awakened ones, where death has no entry, in that my mind delights. Wow. It's a lot packed into these short statements. Okay? So he's saying there is that which does not change, does not vibrate or burn. Death has no entry there because because it doesn't change, there's no death. It's eternal, deathless. And um, my mind delights in it. I love it. It's valuable. The born to be, the born, conditioned arising, come to be, produced, the made, the conditioned, the transient, conjoined with decay and death, a nest of disease, perishable, sprung from nutriment, things that feed, he was a farmer, and cravings cord, that is not fit to take delight in. Even cookies. The escape from that, the peaceful, beyond reasoning, everlasting, the not born, the unproduced, the sorrowless state that is void of stain, the cessation of states linked to suffering, the stilling of the conditioned bliss. You can see right here. He's naming the unconditioned, he's valuing it, he's mounting a a critique of ordinary conditioned consciousness and its limitations. And he is saying from his own direct experience that he has found that unchanging bliss, which he then encourages others to practice and join him there. So what, how do we think about that and what do we make of it in the lives that we have? I find honestly for me as we wrap up here, just confronting these sorts of teachings intellectually, but also most fundamentally, is there something in them that speaks to your heart, that your heart knows is true? Even if your mind stumbles over the words, your heart knows there's something true here. There's something true. So I'm interested in what could be done. Here we go. 
to um, to rest in this. And I want to offer two reflections and then finish up with you here. Okay. The first, very simply, without getting too geeky about it, is these days there are all these studies that manipulate uh, two particles that are entwined in a quantum way. And then they run an experiment in which an experimenter knows the state or status of one of those particles. And faster than the speed of light, instantaneously, that determines the nature of the other particle. Because they're flipped, like matched pairs, like opposite pairs. One's up, one's down, one spins this way, one spins that way. And they're, they're matched. All right? So consciousness, and they manipulate these, experience, these experiments so that if the data is extracted but no person is conscious of it, then it doesn't work. But if consciousness is involved, that affects the nature of the, uh, the congealing into actuality of what was merely, or prior to that, quantum possibility. Okay? This is really mind-blowing, but think about that now as the fabric of material reality altogether. So just before if we were to stop time, in effect, just before electrons became electrons, atoms were atoms, moons were moons, the Milky Way was the Milky Way, just before whatever it is right now was in effect this kind of quantum foam field of possibility. What if consciousness needs to be woven in some way, something like consciousness, needs to be woven into the fabric of material reality continuously for quantum possibility to congeal into actuality continuously at the front edge of now. Wow. That's another, that's another way to describe God, in a sense. Some meaning like that. So I just want to throw that out as a really interesting idea that is not inconsistent, at least, with some notions in physics so far. just want to lay that out. And if it's meaningful to a person, see, people imbue the unconditioned with different qualities. Some theistic traditions will imbue the unconditioned with personality, an omnipotent, omniscient, or a, a, a being of some kind. Others, very much rooted in, in early Buddhism, the descriptions are extremely spare, and the Buddha endlessly undermines people's clinging to or hopeful fantasies about the unconditioned, and he keeps pushing them back into their own practice. So I think that's a, an honorable thing to do. But that said, I just think that this possibility here, this consideration, um, would be consistent with the sense of there being some kind of consciousness uh, in the unconditioned that's aware of conditioned uh, arising and passing away. And I don't say that assertively, like I'm right and you've got to learn about this. I'm just raising it as a possibility, as an inquiry that's also been personally meaningful. All right? I mean, I've, I, I've got to keep going, Julianne, unfortunately. I'd love to hang out more about these topics. Ten days. What was I thinking? Trying to do this in one day. I've got to manage my craving. All right. Now I'm going to give you another trippy idea. I asked myself, what's, what happens in the brain in the run-up to nirvana? Okay, if we grant that something's at work here outside the natural frame, the brain and the body are in the natural frame. They're physical. 
energetic processes. Something's going on there. And I'm very struck by the classic description in uh, the teachings of the Buddha that is very psychological, that talks about um, steadying... Here's the sequence. Good. Thank you, sir. Steady the mind internally. Quiet it. Bring it to singleness. So these are things we've started working with already today. Bring it to singleness. Then concentrate it. Now concentration in Buddhism are these non, is a word for these non-ordinary states of consciousness called the jhanas. There are four jhanas in the right concentration element of the Eightfold Path. So there's, now we have this progression. So we, foundation of morality, virtue, and so forth. Steady the mind internally, quiet it, bring it to singleness, enter the first jhana, read the descriptions, I can't do it right now. Second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. If you read those descriptions, the mind gets quieter and quieter and quieter. First jhana, there's applied attention, there's sustained attention, there's bliss. Second jhana, bliss continues, applied attention and sustained and like deliberate executive function, attention, regulation falls away. Third jhana, bliss falls away. There's just joy, equanimity grows. Fourth jhana, the description gets very spare, just profound peace. And then they move into the next four, they're called formless jhanas, the base of infinite space, whatever the heck that means. I've gotten as far as a sense of the fourth, and definitely time in the first two. But out here, don't have experiences, but I'm just reading the account. The Let's see, base of infinite space, the fifth jhana in effect, the base of infinite consciousness, gosh, what is this, seventh, something... And then something, base of nothingness, something. And then the eighth is the, you know, neither perception nor non-perception. <laughs> and then cessation. And then after cessation, nirvana. And then they come back, and clearly they didn't die. There's not a rebirth thing going on here. The body kept going. What's going on? And so for my hunch about it, I have it up here basically, is that for experience, because that's an account of experience, right? Steadiness, quiet, singleness, the jhanas, the formless jhanas, that's an account of experience. And then somehow experience ceases in some sense, and yet it's transformative. It's not that we anesthetized the person or they went to sleep. It's that something transformative occurred. What could that possibly be? It strikes me as plausible that in the neural substrates of consciousness, which are distributed and significant, there must be a lot of uh, unused representing capacity for the next thing to be represented. 
the next sound, the next sight, the next thought to be represented. Well, anything that's represented as a conscious sound, sight, feeling, memory, image, you name it, sense of I, um, is in effect a reduction of noise. It's a kind of eddy or a coalescence into an organized pattern that carries information. Information is a reduction of uncertainty in terms of information theory. It's signal, not noise. So that means there must be a lot of unused representative represent, representing capacity, like the space in a whiteboard that can represent anything. The whiteboard is conditioned, but inside the frame of the whiteboard, relative to what you could put on it, which is infinite, you can put infinitely variable information on that whiteboard. Um, inside the frame of the whiteboard, it's effectively unconditioned. Okay, you get, kind of get that idea. So now we have the conditioned and the unconditioned. Do 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 do. What does that remind you of? Right. So my notion is that as people proceed in this run-up to cessation, is that the signals, the meanings, drop out. The mind becomes profoundly quiet. As people move beyond... Some teachers say that you just to get, enter the first jhana, you lose all sensory awareness. For sure, by the fourth and the formless jhanas, you've lost all normal sensory awareness. The door opens, you don't hear it. There are true stories of meditators who would drop into these states and others would come and find them 10 days later. And they know that that much time passed because the potatoes were covered with mold that they'd been cooking or something. And just, okay. And so my point is, I have a hunch that what happens as I wrap up here, that uh, as we get quieter and quieter and quieter, the signals gradually drop out. And eventually they all drop out. So there's only unconditioned fertile noise. The heart is still... It's it's there's everybody wants to know that I've we, I've done I've seen things where people are studying meditators who can enter jhana states and what's happening in their brain is kind of measured this notion I I don't know how you would do it but I don't think it's happened but it does strike me as plausible and it strikes me that in our ordinary practice it really helps as a lot of meditative suggestions have when when you're when you're having experiences. Get a sense of the field of possibility in your own, the space between the thoughts, the space around the thoughts, the sense of, of more that could be represented. And then what do we identify with? Do we identify with, identify with the content or do we identify with the field of effectively unconditioned possibility that's like, that's why that word is underlined, like, it's not the same as That would be a category error. But it's like ultimate unconditionality. Wow. All right. So what to do about it? I'm going to finish on this. I have a reflection to leave you with. and I'll just leave it at that. And then I'm going to read you a little poem at the very end. So as soon as we start... So when you play with this, you start practicing and you start having more and more an intimation of unconditionality at a minimum in the neural substrates of consciousness. From which, it seems to me, people start to report and infer a sense of possibility in material reality, not just in your experience. 
but a sense of possibility in material reality always just prior to this instance of what of the universe, of what's here, what it is. You start getting a sense of that more and more, right? And um, I think that what happens for people is people become more and more accessible. And if you read the account of people that are very far along in practice, they're in the natural frame. It's like they have one leg in the natural frame and they have one leg in the unconditioned. Right? And there's a sense of living into the next conditioned moment with the back parts of them, in some sense, abiding in complete freedom. And then how can we have more and more of that quality ourselves in how we experience living? And I think what happens is over time, people become more permeable. They become more accessible. They start having more real-time, it's true for me, more real-time intimations of unconditionality, possibility. Maybe their intimations uh, have a sense of consciousness, not just unconditionality, but certain qualities of consciousness or maybe love or benevolence uh, as in ways that just are beyond my ken, um, are part of the nature of the unconditioned, the transcendental. And to be clear, I'm not trying to pitch any kind of religion here. I'm trying to be consistent with Buddha Dharma, also thinking about it through the lens of the brain and how plausibly it could all work, emphasizing practice. So to make it real, my last two slides, I think it helps to make this real to feel at ease, to feel alert, to feel tranquil, then you're kind of resting, whether formal practice or many moments of awakening, right? Moments of awakening many times a day. Okay, you're there. And then, just for a second, or less than a second, you allow your mind to kind of stop and be startled with some intimation of what was just before this. Again and again and again. As soon as you think about what was just before this, you're in this, thinking about that. All right. And yet, more and more, you can start to have a sense of that always just prior to this. And you can start having a sense, even of your own mind, being infused with that sense of possibility, which then helps people be less uptight, contracted, and um, attached. And that me is very much what the Buddha pointed to the words like Buddha nature or classic teachings thou art that non-dual teachings the inner penetration of uh, the unconditioned and the conditioned together or finishing here thanks for indulging my going six minutes over Thomas Merton Christian monastic as well as a serious Buddhist practitioner he writes be still Listen to the stones of the wall. Be silent. They try to say your name. Listen to the living walls. Who are you? Who are you? Whose silence are you? Thanks for indulging my non-silence today.
I wish you well. May your stillness fill your heart and carry you along and benefit many, many people through you. Thank you again. And practice. So these are pointing out instructions in the last section here. Practice, that's the key. That's the bottom line. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.